electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. In just a little bit, I'll speak exclusively to legendary trader Mark Fisher. He might be known for his prowess in the commodities market. However, he's got thoughts about your money across every market today and how he thinks the Fed can really kill inflation once and for all without destroying the economy at the same time. We begin, though, with our talk of the tape. New lows and beyond. Where stocks are really heading from here after taking out those levels from June, at least on the Dow. Joe Terranova, we'll ask him. CNBC contributor and Virtus Investment Partners chief market strategist right here with us at Post 9. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming down here. We talked to you on the halftime report yep. today as we were sort of in the game. Um, now we're, you know, here we're on the sidelines take, taking uh, stock, if you will, in what just happened. As I said, a new closing low for the Dow. Where do we go from here? Well, I think you have to take a, a little bit of a good feeling about the way that we ended the day. This clearly had the feel of a liquidation type of an event. Uh, trading volumes were very heavy. Volume was nearly 40% above the 30-day average. We haven't seen that in a while. Certainly, you saw in uh, Treasury yields a spike, almost a parabolic spike, um, move higher to eight, you know, to levels that we haven't seen in, in many, many years. So. I think that's indicative of a little bit of a liquidation feel. I think you could take heart in that, but by no means does that mean this is the all clear because ultimately uh, the big question is going to be earnings. You know, John Spallanzani, who uh, sends a lot of information uh, through to us throughout the day, said you got 7 million uh, SPY puts uh, that were bought today. Uh, that only happens once in a while is what he said. This sort of gives you an idea of where sentiment is right now and where, you know, a good number of traders think we may be going from here. A bearishness is at levels that we haven't witnessed since 2008. And again, I think uh, today a lot of the liquidation in certain positions, I think, is indicative that the moves that we saw in the currency market uh, for both the sterling and the euro, the euro at its lowest level since so too. Yeah. Sterling, I think, 37 years. We haven't seen that type of low. So uh, th that type of behavior in the currency market, in the commodity markets where you saw the free fall, not just for oil and natural gas, but even for safe havens like gold. You saw it in the fixed income market. You saw it universally. And then a lot of the recent favorites, a lot of the areas of the equity market where you, you felt as though there was this potential opportunity, this relative outperformance, let's say in a Netflix or a Tesla, there was a significant reversal in liquidation there as well. I'm looking at what you're talking about, uh, Euro 96, the pound 108. I mean, we're talking about decades long from the last time we've seen anything remotely close to that. I look at the VIX as I, as I try and pull that up. You know, the VIX is at 30. It's not like the VIX was like ripping with a lot of these other things. Is there any message in, in any of that? As long as the dollar remains as strong as it is and rates are where they are, how can stocks get out of the way of that? Well, I think they can't. And I think the, the contagion spreads globally because really what happens is that the inflation from the U.S. is exported to the rest of the world. And that's what's being represented in the currency move. So there's been a lot of conversation this week about 60-40 portfolios. 
and the value that's been restored, certainly for the 40% allocation. In bonds. Scott, You're I, talking about in bonds. In, in bonds, clear and fixed income and in taxable fixed income as well as government bonds. And I agree with that. That's, that's where the value, value opportunity is right now. There's such compelling and competing yields at the same time for equity investors. And knowing that you're seeing now the inflation being exported via the currency vehicle around the world, that's a problem for domestic and global equities. Let's, let's acknowledge, though, the fact that we did close well off the lows, okay? okay? We didn't close at some cataclysmic blow-off on a, on a Friday afternoon like, frankly, we've done multiple times since I've been doing this, this program. Multiple 900-plus down days in the Dow. Not that long ago, a 1,000-plus point decline in the Dow. Does that tell you that we're at any sort of oversold level where we could get some sort of bounce, whether it's lasting or not? I think people will take a meaningful bounce from here now that we've hit some of these pivotal uh, levels. I think there's been a lot of debate on the network this week um, and some degree of frustration when we use the term long-term investor, right? People say in an environment like this, how could you be a long-term investor? How could you talk about... Uh, the future so, you know, salently. Um, Scott, I'll tell you this. To me, the market is incredibly oversold if you are a long-term investor. Would I sell my equities here at, you know, 36.93 for the S&P? No, I wouldn't. I know, but you sold you sold Uber and those you sold trades, Lululemon. Though. But those are trades. But what's the difference? You still took some profits or got out of stocks that you loved. So the difference is, is when you think about long-term investing, you think about wealth creation. You think about establishing a series of, of goals and outcomes for your portfolio. You think about the long term. You don't think about market timing. You think about time in the market. There are other individuals who everyone plays golf, but there are some who play golf really well, like Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and professional golfers. And I think the same thing could be said for trading. And I believe that trading is something that select people can do if they're focused properly on what risk is. And trades in Uber, Trades in Lululemon, those are trades, and quite candidly, Scott, they were profitable trades in a, in a significant downtrend overall for the market. So I think that's where you can make the distinction no, I between know, I know this is a trading trades. opportunity and an investment opportunity. I, I know they were profitable trades, but the mere fact that you're leaving behind stocks that you liked in this environment says that you still think we're in a very uncertain world. That The common denominator on both is what? They're consumer-facing businesses. And what, from what I heard from Chairman Powell the other day, when he talked about pain, when he talked about, uh, as Steve Leisman brilliantly said, out hawking the hawks, right? In that environment, the thesis previously has been the consumer will be resilient and corporate profit margins will be resilient as well. I don't know if that thesis is as strong today okay. as it was when you know before hearing those words on Wednesday afternoon. I mentioned we have a very special guest with us today on this Friday. He is the legendary trader Mark Fisher of MBF Clearing Corp. He joins us now in an exclusive interview. And uh, Fish, it's so good to have you with us. I sort of mentioned at the top is your prowess is known for what you do in the commodities market, and that's how we, generally speaking, talk to you. Um, I don't want to do that yet. I want to save our conversation in, in commodities and energy and, and what is really your wheelhouse and just talk to you generally about what you're seeing in the market right now. You've seen a lot of markets. I mentioned earlier today you were a student of Professor Siegel at the Wharton School. 
Um, just give me your idea of, of where you think we are, where we may be going, and then I'll move on and, and talk about what Professor Siegel told me today, which I want you to react to also. But just first, your view on, on what's going on. Right. Okay, well, Scott, what's going on is that we need to manage it, the supply crisis. The only way inflation comes down in the long run is if we go ahead and create more energy, better food, more housing, and lower health insurance costs, right? Because take someone that has blood pressure problems. You go ahead, and the Fed can go ahead and control paper assets via, you know, via the interest rates and via you know, selling, off, selling bonds and everything. And what does it do? It's sort of like blood pressure medication. You take blood pressure medication, and your blood pressure goes down. But the minute the Fed lightens up, and stops raising rates or it becomes more friendly to the market, right? What's going to happen? Just like when you take blood pressure medication. When you stop taking it, your blood pressure goes straight up. On the other hand, if you lose 25 pounds, your blood pressure doesn't go back up. The market needs to go to the mode of losing 25 pounds. And the way you do that is by increase, is by stimulating supply. Supply of food, supply of, supply of, of energy, supply of housing and lowering health care costs. And if you say that's impossible to do because, you know, this country can't agree on anything, think about 18 months ago in Europe. If, if I would have told you 18 months ago, Scott, I want to build an LNG plant or a small nuke plant, you know, you would have laughed at me. I mean, there was probably a better chance of me winning the Miss Universe pageant, right? And it would have taken eight to 10 years to do it. Now, they're building LNG plants in 18 months. Why? Because the market reached that tipping point where everyone says, we need to do something, and they're doing it. The question is, is this country ready to go ahead and to a a address the supply issues once and for all well, and get past all the politics, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, and realize that we have to stop beating up the middle class? Because think about this, Scott. Did the middle class really cause inflation? No. But if you raise unemployment, who really suffers? The middle class, right? The, the answer is we need to go ahead and increase and incentivize the supply side of the equation. And I can show you, it's pretty, it's, it's not that hard, but it means we actually have to all get on the same page or relatively well, on the same page. So there's a few different things in there. Number one, um, I think we can both agree that one of the issues with all of this is that the Fed cannot impact the supply side of economics. So that's problem, problem number one, right? It's toolbox isn't uh, affixed with the tools that can deal with that. And number two, to your analogy of the, the blood pressure, you're talking about uh, real structural changes, none of which are able to happen overnight. Maybe we can speed up the process. Maybe we can speed up the process to your point about what's happening in, in Europe. But even in that scenario, we're talking about a many, many months long process. And we've got the here and now of inflation that we don't seem to know exactly how to get it down fast enough, even though some would suggest it's coming down and maybe quite substantially in certain areas, and therein lies the problem. But it is coming down temporarily, right? I mean, obviously, Professor Eagle's right. Everything, you know, crude oil from 110 to, you know, 70-something, right? It's all come down. The question is, how do you keep it down? And again, I don't really think you need to have the solution tomorrow, but, it, but people need to get on the same page. And if, it, if, if, if the marketplace perceives that there's going to be a supply chain answer and it actually then takes a while to happen, but they really think that it's going to happen, 
the market's going to correct itself to it, and inflation expectations will come down in general, right? But if you think about, look what happened in in, in the UK today. They just tried to stimulate demand, and look what happened. Like you guys said, look what happened to that bonds and, and currency market destroyed. If that's not the sign that stimulating demand is not the answer here, I don't know what is. If 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 we can't wake up in this country and realize that for the first time we have a, a inflation issue that's not going to go away. I mean, it's going to go away now with the Fed killing everything. But the minute the Fed lets up on the pedal, we're going to be right back to where we were. We need to go so, ahead. That's. I mean, it's pretty obvious. So you you just said the words. These aren't my words. They're yours. The the Fed killing everything. It's sort of a principal concern of what we did here from your former. Prof- Professor Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School on the halftime report today. I want you to listen to a chunk of that because uh, it's pretty provocative and we can react to it on the other side. I am very upset. Yes, I am. I am. I, I, I'm afraid it's like a pendulum. They were way too easy, as I've told you and many others through 2020, 2021. And now, oh my God, you know. We're going to be real tough guys until we crush the economy. I mean, that that is just to me absolutely um, poor monetary policy would be an understatement. I mean, look, I think I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching Twitter. I know it's a, it's a it's only a small sample size. I'm watching Twitter and they're like, go, professor. You're right. Well, I mean, I, I think we're giving right. Powell. Yeah, honestly, we're giving him too much of a, you know, oh, good, he's standing against inflation. We're giving him too much praise. I mean, listen, the Fed has just, you know, executed the last two years one of the biggest policy mistakes in the 110-year history of the Fed by staying so easy when everything was booming and pointing to, my God, inflation is going to be a terrible problem. And now, oh, yeah, we did goof badly there, which he never really admitted I mean, he still blames some things on Ukraine and, you know, Putin and the supplies, even though oil is way below that level, way beyond that. And, and, and now we're, we're, we're saying, oh, my God, he's the God that's going to stop inflation and he's going to crush the wages, which have not kept, which have fallen behind inflation by three, four, five percent. You can't have cost push inflation when you're lagging inflation. You can't blame wages for inflation when they're two, three, four, five percent behind inflation. Uh, I mean, why is he putting the burden on the on these working people, on the employed people? That's, I mean, what is, and on every other commodity price is going down. Powell and Fed are eventually going to see the light. I mean, they eventually, I mean, it took almost forever to see the light that inflation was not temporary. And then, you know, and then they made that change. They'll eventually see how tight they are. And just like None of their predictions of November 2021 came true. None of them. None of their forecasts, none of their dot plots, none of their forecasts of Fed funds came at all true. I don't think anything that they're saying for 2023 is going to come true either. I think they're going to really be forced to lower the rate and more rapidly than much more rapidly than they think. All right, Fish, I mean, you've sat in this man's class, right? He's uh, animated and generally speaking, time, but he's last, worked up. The last time I saw Professor Siegel so animated was, was 1980 when I was in this class when, when, when we had a whole gold debacle. But I want to get to that. And by the way, that was Professor Siegel's class. It was one of the few classes where I wasn't the top student, but forget that. 
But in reality, <laughs> to Joe's point, right? When I saw that, when I saw when I watched that halftime show with Professor Siegel, to me, I covered a lot of my shorts because to me that could have been a tradable bottom. What that's the sentiment that you want to see as a you know if you're a trader, not an investor, as, as Joe talked about before, but as a trader. To me, when 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 you have someone like Professor Siegel's and his and his prowess, go ahead and have a meltdown about the Fed. To me, that could be that could have been that could have been it for a little bit. Right. But that is a trader, not as an investor. But everything he said about the Fed, the Fed can't control supply. The, the, the Congress has to control supply. We have to go ahead and, and it's easy. You may have to put in you have to incentivize um, housing by giving tax incentives, by giving people guaranteed rate of returns. Think about it, Scott. If you knew that in your area there was going to be three thousand more units of rentable housing two, three years from now, what happens to the price the minute the marketplace realizes it? It goes down today. If you go ahead and give farmers incentives and you give them price supports like we used to do in cotton, so they, don't, they can produce as much as they possibly can, what happens to the price of food today goes down. If you go ahead and finally allow pipelines throughout this country to, be, to, to connect for natural gas, right? What happens to the price of natural gas? Even though the pipelines take well, they go down. Think about this. In Texas, gas is trading $3 below the hub and say it's trading $3, $4. In the New England area, because there's no pipelines, it's trading in the 30s. The country needs to understand that if you win 70% of your argument, you've won the argument. You can't win if you expect that you're going to get 100% your way in any argument. I don't know whoever wins. You know. And if this doesn't wake up our institutions, nothing's going to. And hopefully this is the wake-up call. Because the Fed let's, let's cannot control long-term inflation by doing this. It can only go ahead and wreak havoc, like Professor Siegel said, in the short term. Do you think that, so in that light, do you think the Fed's done too much? Do I think the Fed's done too much? I think they were late to the party one way, and I think they're reacting too late, yeah, to some degree. But again, they're, 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 they're pigeonholed also. I mean, it's not, they're not to blame, right? We need everything with the fiscal stimulus that got done during COVID throughout the world, and, 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 and taking our balance sheet from $1 trillion to, to $9 trillion, you know, that was kind of, that was lunacy to begin with. Now, you know, everyone's backpedaling too fast. But the real answer is just like I said, increased supply. Even though it may not happen to, your, to what you said, Scott, immediately, maybe it takes, you know, two years to build it out. Two and a half. But if the market knows it's coming, the market will adjust prices accordingly. If, you, if the market doesn't think it's coming, okay, it's not going to adjust. And that's, it's, it's black and white. It's kind of simple. Let's do this. Let, let's take a quick break. We'll come back uh, after this quick break, and we'll talk about the commodities markets. We'll talk about energy, the big sell-off there, what's going on, how you can protect your money, perhaps make some money in that space. It's the worst-performing sector in today's drop, by the way. Discuss all of it with Mark Fisher right after this break. And as we do head to the break, take a look at today's Twitter question. We want to know, do you agree with Professor Jeremy Siegel that the Fed has done too much and should stop hiking or... Do you think it should keep going? Head to at CNBC Overtime on Twitter. Cast your vote. Simple question. Stop or keep going? We're back from the stock exchange right after this.
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. We're back in overtime. Among the asset classes getting smoked today, as I mentioned, commodities, I like oil, as the dollar continues to rip higher and concerns of a global slowdown intensify. Legendary energy trader Mark Fisher, of course, is still with us. Joe Terranova is here, too. Uh, all right, Mark. So we've got energy, the worst today, the worst this week, the worst this month. I've got a seven handle on crude. What do you make of this? To me, I'm buying. We're going to start buying. I mean, we started a little, but not really to buy out in the curve. Jan. 24 natural gas, you know, is trading, you know, 570. Again, for natural gas purposes, what happens, Scott, now in October is a complete different animal than what happens in, in the winter. And natural gas is a winter commodity. That's number one. Second of all, crude oil prices two years out are now $66. It's almost I, I, like I was biting at the lip to buy a lot of it today. I didn't. But at $66, again, risk reward. What's my risk? If we, if we don't solve this problem and the Fed keeps hammering out, you know, two years now, can we go to $60? Maybe. But I think the risk reward is lined up. If you can buy deferred crude oil futures, you know, out on the board, like, you know, Cal the 23, late Cal the 24, you'll be fine. I think natural gas this winter, it's still going to be a winter commodity. Obviously, natural gas also got pummeled because, you know, they were afraid of the hurricane, you know, hitting the production areas. But again, October natural gas and Jan natural gas are two different animals. I think in terms of equities, what do I know about equities? Yes, Joe. But I still think that Southwestern Range Resources, just to me, because those are the names we have, are still good value. But the marketplace in general, in terms of other equities, I'm not sure. But the, to me, the easiest things are the things that the Fed can't really manipulate and that no one can manipulate. Natural gas, agricultural products, corn, soybeans, wheat. There's no OPEC of corn, soybeans, and wheat. Who's the government going to go talk to to you know, increase production? You can't do that. I mean, on the other so, hand, one last thing. On the other hand, in Russia, I mean, if you follow the, pre the playbook of what happened in Crimea, you could be set up for a, a pleasant surprise a couple of weeks now, right? Think about what, you know, it's been around the marketplace for this week. 
They annexed some territory. Putin says, okay, they're now part of Russia. We're done. And that'll be up to Ukraine to see if they stop or not, which, you know, could have a, would be an interesting dichotomy to see if, if Ukraine would mm. stop or if the world would make Ukraine stop. But that's, that's always been, that's, that, that's always been a great wild card, of course, is trying to game out how all of that in Eastern Europe is, is gonna, gonna end up. And, and we do have Joe Chernova, as I've mentioned. I'm, I'm glad we do, because yeah. how does what Mark says from the commodity standpoint translate to the equity standpoint, both in energy equities and uh, ags, which you have, you have owned and may still own both it, across the, the, the space? Well, the, the, the first question that I would ask of Mark is, Mark, what you talk about the curve and long-dated futures, talk a little bit about... No, hold on. I want to know what Mark said about what he just said about energy. Is the environment right now... He, he doesn't speak to the stocks so much. I want you to speak to the stocks. No, no, no. I, I know. He's, he, absolutely. So, you, without question... Where I want to go. You want, I, I got you. Without question, you want to stay in the agriculture names, which I've talked about. Uh, Archer Daniels, Midland, John Deere, you want to stay in the energy names. Where I'm going with Mark is one of the reasons why is because in the futures market, the supply challenge that you're seeing is reflected in the shape of the curve, Scott, which we know is backwardation and contango. So the point is, if, if the signal to get out of agriculture energy or energy equities was going to be lit from the commodities market, it would be that you would see the backwardation come out of the futures market on a big down day. And Mark, I don't think that's exactly what you saw today. You still have that strength of a backward-dated curve, which is signaling supply challenges. That's why you want to stay with these agriculture and energy equities. Joe, I think that backward-dated can tangle for 80% of the people that are watching this. We might be talking, you know, they're not going to understand that. It's simple. $66 crude oil. If I told you you could buy crude oil two years from now, $66. Are you a buyer or a seller? I'm a buyer. If I told you you can buy winter nat gas a year from that, out from now at, you know, seven something, are you a buyer or a seller? I'm a buyer. It's that simple. Explain to our audience about backwardation contango. That, that, yes, but the that's supply what really challenge, you agree the this. supply challenge is still there. Yes. It's not going the, away. The, the, the point that I take from all of this to connect the dots for, for our viewers is if you would buy, uh, or if I said you could buy oil today at, at 60, you'd be a buyer. Um, some suggest that energy stocks right now are trading like oil is at 60, not at 78. And that's why they would suggest that their good buys here at these particular levels. Joe, I throw that to you. I, I without question agree with that because of the capital allocation strategies. So they're not incentivizing the increase in supply with the incremental dollar of revenue that's generated. What are they doing? They're prioritizing dividends and buybacks. And as a shareholder of those companies, when I know I've got a tight supply environment, why wouldn't I want to own those companies, especially now when I see the spot price decline 25% since the beginning of July in the case of uh, oil, in the case of a lot of these agriculture names, double digits as well. This is a point that Brian Sullivan was making in the, the prior hour of, of closing bell, what some are suggesting, the way that some of these energy stocks are trading. The best uh, oil play right now for you is what? And the best natural gas play for you right now is what from an equity standpoint? Um, so Pioneer Natural is in the energy side, a name that I think 
certainly you want to have exposure to. You can even look at some of the, the uh, refiners like Valero, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, ExxonMobil, a lot of multinationals. I don't think you're going to go wrong there. On the natural gas side, I've talked a lot about One Oak, which has underperformed a lot of the other natural gas games so far year to date. Uh, Devon Energy, EOG, these are other names in natural gas that I think you could own. And I think Mark previously mentioned RRC and Southwestern Energy. Those are also a little bit of a more high beta play on natural gas but those are names I think you could consider. Why of all the names in the universe, Mark, even as you know, you, you say, oh, you're not, you know, what do you know about stocks? Obviously, you know something about it. Why is Range Resources the name that you lean on most and the one that you have been? Because I can remember most of the last times that we've spoken over the last two handfuls of months, uh, that name is the one that always comes up. Why? Range in Southwest, Scott, because, you know, to some degree, to be honest, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I'm an old dog, right? So... Range and Southwest have been comfortable trading stocks for me, and I'm not really a, a stock expert. I mean, you want to be a stock expert? Ask Joe. You know, I don't know if energy's trading against this. Energy stocks are trading against the 60 handle, 50 handle. You know, ask Tepper. What do I know? All I can tell you is that in terms of the futures market, if you tell me, Mark, I can buy crude oil now at $66 in two years out. I could buy nat gas for next winter. You know, at 570, I'm a buyer. Not this winter, next week. I'm a buyer. And, and, and pretty soon, I don't care what the Fed does, I'll be a buyer at those levels. What if I told you that the dollar was going to remain red hot? How would that change, if in any way, your perspective on where commodities prices in general are, are going? It's a good question, Scott. Does it matter? I mean, is the dollar at these levels, or does the dollar appreciate another 15% against the pound? Does the dollar stay here against the euro, or does the euro go to, I don't know, 85 if the, obviously, if it stays here, it doesn't affect. It doesn't affect what I'm saying. If 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 the euro goes to 85, then anything denominated in dollars, whether it be crude oil, nat gas, or anything, is going to go down because you know you just got the dollar became that much stronger. Think about it. The prices in 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 Europe of natural gas and crude aren't down as much because you've got the currency depreciation. So, do I think the dollar is going to go? to 85 in the euro, I don't know, bring in someone from, that's not my, that's not my, I, I, I can't analyze that because that's not my game. The, the best part about you though, and I love that you're so honest about it, is you know what you know, and you admit what you don't know, and I know our viewers really appreciate that. Let's wrap it up. Uh, you enjoy the weekend. Uh, I appreciate you spending the last 30 minutes with us. Uh, these are precarious times in all sorts of different markets. We needed your perspective today. Thank you for it. Thanks, Scott. All right. That's Mark Fisher joining us. It's time for a CNBC News update with Shepard Smith. Hi, Shep. Hey, Scott. Thanks from the news on CNBC. Here's what's happening. A shocking report from the United Nations today on Russian atrocities in Ukraine. Among the findings, the rape and torture of children by Russian soldiers and a large number of executions. The report follows several other allegations of war crimes from Ukraine, human rights groups and Western governments. Hurricane Fiona, now a Category 4 storm and taking aim at Nova Scotia. Forecast to hit there tomorrow afternoon. It brushed past Bermuda today as a Cat 3 storm. High winds, heavy rains. This is another storm now gathering in, this, in strength in, the, in uh, the Caribbean. And it could become a major hurricane threatening Florida next week. Just minutes ago, the governor there, Ron DeSantis, declared a state of emergency for 24 Florida counties. And another COVID scam. 
Labor Department's inspector general says today more than $45 billion in pandemic unemployment aid was stolen. The time frame, March of 2020, so right at the beginning until April of this year. More than half of that fraud coming from people who filed for benefits in multiple states. Tonight, more of the report of Russian war crimes in Ukraine, plus Mike Santoli on the markets, and inside the most expensive apartment in America on the news, 7 Eastern, CNBC. Scott, back to you. All right, Shep, thank you. That's Shepard Smith. Up next, trading the turbulence, stocks sinking to end the week. So where do investors go from here? We have an all-star panel of money managers standing by to help you navigate all of that. We're right back. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. We're back. Stocks selling off sharply today. The Dow dropping 486 points and taking out its June lows. Joining me now to break down the action, Keith Lerner from Truist, Alicia Levine from BNY Mellon Wealth Management. It's good to see you both. Alicia, to you first. Where do we go from here? What do you think? Well, great to see you, Scott, on another turbulent Friday. Look, we have been in print with our clients for months now that our, our downward, you know, our downward range was at 3,600. So we've we've well prepared our clients for what we thought the downside could be in this market if inflation did not resolve on its own and if the, if the Fed had to come in and really go higher for longer. I, I think it's no stretch of the imagination to say that we could likely undercut that here simply because markets don't stop exactly where you think they are. And the momentum here is clearly to the downside. But but I'd say this. Uh, to the extent that um, we are seeing evidence of inflation cooling in other parts of the economy, I think at some point we could have a relatively better end of the year than we have the end of the third quarter. And I would just say that the fourth quarter is seasonally very strong, particularly in a midterm election year. So in the short term, Likely we go lower. Not not too hard to say that, but I do think we, we do have a better fourth quarter. So, Keith, aside from ranting, I think we can went on a rant, Jeremy Siegel did today, that the Fed's doing too much, right? That was, that was plain. That, that was his point of view. The other side of it, of course, is as long as they're doing that, as, as long as they're so resolute to stay on the path they're talking about being on now, Stocks are going to continue to go lower. Do you agree? Listen, um, well, first, great to be with you and Alicia. Um, I'm kind of in the same camp with Alicia. We were with you in August, and uh, our view back then was to reduce equities as we were approaching 42 to 4,300. But our message today, and we just we just wrote this uh, today, Scott, is that we don't think it's time to press a negative view after a 15% decline in just five weeks. I mean, today felt a little bit panicky. Um, We're seeing, uh, you know, one of the more oversold conditions similar to June. So we can certainly overshoot that 
But I think uh, at this point, a lot of the damage has been done, at least short term. And, um, you know, I think we will get a rebound. I will say, you know, as we look at six to 12 months, we still think we have a very challenging backdrop because I do agree with uh, Siegel insofar as I think the Fed has scar tissue. And what that means is not only will they keep rates higher for longer, is they likely to be less aggressive when they do pivot. And this is going to affect the market cycles and economic cycles for many years to come, in our view, because they're not going to be on call like they've been for the past uh, several years. But again, more direct to your question, Scott, we just down, went down 15% in a straight line. We don't think this is time to press the bets on the negative side. Oh, I hear you. I mean, it's hard to be, it can't really get negative now. If you're just getting negative now, you haven't been paying attention because there's been all sorts of reasons leading up to today why you may want to be negative. Most certainly don't fight the Fed, right? Alicia, now that sounds great. That doesn't really help anybody, though, sitting at home who's wondering, should I perhaps buy stocks now? What if I listen to Keith? I'm not inclined to get uber negative today, but should I start to get incrementally positive? So I think to the extent that there's fear and loathing in the market, that sentiment is rock bottom close to where it was during the global financial crisis. I think it's not actually a bad plan to start edging in. I'd say this. I do think that we have a ways we, we do have a couple of weeks here where we could go lower simply because it's, it's not done yet. There's the valuations have to come in. Earnings are going to start to crack a little bit, but it is too late to get negative from here. So we've already uh, diversified our clients with alternatives, short-term fixed income. We pulled out of emerging markets and Europe to an extent earlier this year. So, you know, we've, we've already taken some risk off the table. And what we're looking for is a better entry point. So the question is, Alicia, what is the better entry point? And for us, this is about earnings and this is about what's realistic. And to the extent that we see earnings come down, we would be willing to buy here because, Scott, you know this, that the market stabilizes well before the real economy and well before the data do. So the yeah. Fed's in a tough space because they're, they're stuck with having to make economic projections with backward looking data. So to go back to Jeremy Siegel for a second, it, it, that's the, 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 the crux of the matter and the bind that they're in. It's not that they're making two mistakes, it's that this once they made the first mistake, they were stuck with this. Yeah, I hear you. Guys, enjoy the weekend if possible, after this uh, turbulent week. Uh, we'll see you soon. I know that. Keith and Alicia, thanks for joining us. Up next, the tech trade Nasdaq getting slammed in today's sell-off. How can you position your portfolio amid all of that uncertainty? We'll find out. Eric Jackson is going to join us when we come back. We're back in overtime. Take a look at the pain in the tech trade. New 52-week lows this week for big names like Microsoft, Alphabet, and Meta. But our next guest says we're close to a bottom in tech. Joining us now, Eric Jackson, EMJ Capital, founder, president, and portfolio manager. I guess you think we must be, it's good to see you, by the way. Uh, I guess you, you think too. we must be near a top in rates. Well, last time I was on, uh, I was expecting a soft CPI print. Obviously, I was wrong. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, this huge pullback, especially in the last couple of days with the with the Powell rhetoric. Uh, but I think uh, I previously said that I, I think the best uh, analog to look to uh, for a prediction of what's going to happen is 1981-82, because that's the last time we were, we were dealing with out of control inflation. And back then, if, if past is prologue, 
it, it did show that tech bottomed first. Tech bottomed about 10 months before the rest of the market. So you had individual names in uh, September of 81 until August of 82, like IBM, analog devices that went up 30 to 40 percent over that period when the S&P actually declined 14 percent. was still the indices were still going down. And then finally, in August of 82, CPI dropped below 6%. Uh, the Fed kind of signaled that it was easing. And then the stocks were off to the races in general. And NASDAQ doubled over the next 10 months after that. So, you know, we, we still are, might be a few months away. It might even be early 23 before we see uh, the markets really responding to lower inflation. But there are certain tech stocks that I think can still work from here. So I'm, I'm looking at a headline that was literally just tweeted out from, from uh, Ari Levy of CNBC and CNBC.com. Tech stocks just had their worst two-week stretch since the start of the pandemic. Dropped consecutively, did the Nasdaq, consecutive 5% declines uh, in consecutive weeks for, for the Nasdaq. What if I throw it back to you and I say, okay, I get you with the first in, first out argument. But if I say that the, the tops in, in tech were fueled by free money. And they're not going to get back to those levels or anywhere close to it anytime soon because the free money days are done. Well, I'd say that the, the, those kinds of companies that benefited the most from the free money are probably the ones that are down 95% uh, since February of 2021. The, the market has meted out its pain to the players that uh, deserved to be taken down and will never go back to those levels. I would agree with you there. Uh, and and, there, and things are always changing. I, I would say, you know, what we've seen over these last few months is a new fang has emerged, which is basically just Apple and Tesla in tech. They, they, they have really outperformed. Um, you know, and it's interesting that Apple is still well above its, uh, its May and June lows. Uh, so is Tesla, by the way. So, uh, things are changing. You got to adjust to the to the, the environment that we're in now. But I think that you know my belief and hypothesis still holds that it's going to be tech that's going to lead us out of here. That doesn't mean in general. Uh, Nasdaq could still be flat or slightly down over the next little while. But you know the the winning stocks, especially that are smaller, uh, have dealt with the punishment, and they and they'll probably be the first ones to bounce back. No. We're, uh, we're up against it today. I, I appreciate your understanding, Eric. I got to leave it there. We'll talk to you soon. That's Eric Jackson joining us today. Up next, we wrap up an ugly day on Wall Street. Christina Partsinovalos is standing by with our rapid recap. Christina? Yeah, we have a lot to digest. Falling markets, rising yields, massive currency fluctuations. I'll break down the week that was after this short break. We're back. We're wrapping up a volatile week for stocks. Christina Partinovalos here with our rapid recap. Christina? Oh, Scott, at least I can say we came off the lows for the day around 3 p.m. Eastern time. But all indices are over or were over 1.5% lower on the day. On the week, all 30 Dow names in the red. For the S&P 500, we only had 16 winners for week to date like Eli Lilly, uh, DR Horton, and Twitter. The dollar, though, considered a safe asset in times of stress, jumped to its highest level since 2002, the British pound falling to a 37-year low against the USD after the UK's new stimulus program was put in place or announced. And then you also have the euro that all fell to a 20-year low, pushing Germany's two-year and 10-year bonds higher. Recall that prices move inversely with yields. Maybe it's time to take a vacation to Europe. The strong dollar, though, and fears of a global recession dragging on oil prices with West Texas closing below 80 bucks 
a barrel. This is a level we actually haven't seen since January. And then I'll just end with this, the fact that oil is down, the S&P energy sector, the worst performing sector, down 9% on the week, Scott. All right, Christina, thank you so much for that. Christina Partsinovel is up next. It's Santoli's last word. He is breaking down today's sell-off, getting you set up for a big trading week ahead. We're back right after this. Santoli's here for his last word. I, I, I know your thoughts are on Aaron Judge for the weekend. See if he can break the record you, as a big baseball fan. I know yeah, you I'll are. Yeah, I'll turn to that in a couple hours. Yeah. Are you going to keep swinging and missing in the market here? What's uh, up? What, what does this mean? So many things coming to uh, an interesting little decision point, right? I mean, if the two-year note yield goes out of 421, uh, looking super stretched to the upside. Dollar index, same thing. So the question is, does something break or do they just pause and, and calm down and take the immediate pressure off of stocks? That happens, of course, as the market makes a little bit of a teasing break below the, the June low. So I think it, it makes sense we're, we're here uh, wouldn't discount anything anyone is saying about how, you know, the Fed doesn't mind seeing the market down here. This is part of the plan. Uh, it's still tightening into a slowdown. <laughs> Trust the process. Right. It's kind of that way. I, I do keep coming back to the fact, though, that that will be the stated message up until the moment mm-hmm. it stops being it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just it's just the way you have to, to deal with it. And so the only question is, um, do we get to a short term peak in Fed panic? I don't know. It could be. What about, Joe, the idea that uh, Mark Fisher put forth that is that is that the is that peak ne- negativity when, you know, you've got Jeremy Siegel on our air uh, as animated as you can remember him saying enough is enough is enough from the Fed. And that's maybe a moment where you get a bounce off that. I, I think that this quarter has been arguably the most bearish extended quarter that I could remember going back to the great financial crisis. And we're coming up on the end of the quarter. And now think about the performance in the quarter. What are we down 2% yeah. on the quarter? I mean, it, it, it feels like we're down 25% in the quarter. Right. So, you know, the bearishness is something that quite candidly, fundamentally is warranted. And I think it's going to stay with us for a little bit. We, do you take any comfort? Again, I always sort of lean on your market knowledge, your expertise in the years that you've been looking at this. The fact that we had ample reason, really, to close horrifically yeah. today. And we didn't. Now, I know the Dow Some, set a new yeah. low. But, I mean, there was... I wouldn't if we would have looked up and said Dow's was down a thousand at the at the end, we wouldn't have been surprised. No, but it not didn't. At all. It rallied off of the lows at least. Does it mean anything? To me, it all all it means is that nobody was so trapped and there wasn't so much stress in the system where you had to basically continue liquidating into that close. That's all it really tells me. The market has operated very mechanically. We did get back down to this, you know. 200-week average, whatever these numbers are, and below the lows, and it did bounce. There were 1,000 New York Stock Exchange stocks made a 52-week low today. Yeah. That's a pretty decent cleanse in a short-term basis. It's like, do you now start want to start betting on further downside? That's the question, I think. I'm going trying to, to look weekend. for any silver linings to leave no, people with as we head into the weekend, which we'll see on the other side of. You guys have a good one. All, right. All of you as well. Uh, fast money's now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.